A Discriminating Ministry by J.C. Philpott, preached July 11, 1869. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. If ye take forth the precious from the vile, ye shall be as my mouth. Let this people return to you, but you must not return to them. Jeremiah 15, verse 19. None of the prophets of the Old Testament seem to have walked in so rough and thorny a path as the prophet Jeremiah. And there seems to be special reasons why it was so. First, his lot was cast upon very evil days. It was just at the time when the Lord was wreaking his vengeance upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and of Judea through the hand of the king of Babylon. There was famine in the city, war without, and a dark lowering cloud hung over Jerusalem, which Jeremiah knew from the word of the Lord would soon burst forth into a destruction of the city and of its inhabitants. But he was very jealous and zealous for the honor of the Lord who showed him what was coming to pass. He instructed him in his judgments, and he enabled him to lay before the people what would be the consequence of their transgressions if they did not repent. But nobody listened to him. Nothing but persecution met him, and but for the special providence of God, he would have lost his life and he was cast into the pit, where he sunk up to the very armpits and the mud and filth. But again... He seems to have been by nature a man of a rebellious turn of mind. God's people, like other people, are differently constituted. Some are more weak, placid, mild, gentle, and ruffled. Others are naturally more inclined to rise up in anger and rebellion. It was so with Jeremiah. He was not one of those smooth, gentle, easy, placable natures that nothing can ruffle. But on the contrary... The make of his natural mind was such that a mere trifle, so to speak, would stir up in the depths of his heart, rebelliousness even against God. In fact, taking a view of all the prophets, we find none of them indulging in such, if I may use the expression, daring words against the Lord Almighty as the prophet Jeremiah. Look, for instance, at the words preceding my text, why is my pain perpetual? As though he would quarrel with God because he could not get it relieved. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable which refuses to be healed? Why do you not speak the healing word? Why allow my wounds to fret and wrinkle when there is balm in Gilead and a physician there? Why allow my wounds thus to fester? Then comes that speech which to my mind is one of the most, what shall I say, unworthy inappropriate speeches a man ever made to his maker. Will you be altogether unto me as a liar? What if man should call God a liar? It is an offense between man and man. Man cannot bear to be called a liar by his fellow. And many a knockdown blow has been the issue of one man calling his brother a liar. For a man to be so daring as to speak to God when he would scarcely speak to his fellow man seems almost atrocious. And yet, there is a saving word. He says, Will you be altogether unto me as a liar? The word as softens it down. He did not rise up in such dariness to call God altogether a liar. Will you be? It assumes an interrogative form, which softens it still more. Will you be altogether to me as a liar? 
as though he should say to the Lord, you promised to support me. Where is now your support? You promised my enemies shall not prevail against me. See how they prevail. Where is your promise? Why, Lord? It is almost as though you were unfaithful to your word. In his waters it promised to flow to relieve the city. And those waters dried up. Will you be thus to your servant who loves your honor, to whom your word is a joy and rejoicing of his heart? Will you be all this to him, so that you are, as it were, like waters that fail? When I need a drink, there is no drink to relieve my fainting thirst. Now the Lord deals very tenderly with a servant. He is a patient God. He does not, as he might justly do, launch forth the lightnings of his vengeance and say, Call me a liar, take your deserts. No, he speaks very gently and yet firmly and faithfully. If you return, then will I bring you again, and you shall stand before me. If you return from this rebellious mood, from this fretful disposition, from these murmuring accusations, and come back to that better mind which becomes your position, in me as your Lord and Master, you shall stand before me, and I will make it manifest you have a standing in me and before me that none of your enemies can gainsay or resist. And then he adds the words of the text, If you take forth the precious from the vial, he shall be as my mouth. Let this people return to you, but you must not return to them. In these words, I think we may see first a condition. I use the word with some degree of reluctance, but still it conveys the idea best. First, then, a condition. If you take forth the precious from the vial. Secondly, a promise. You shall be as my mouth. Thirdly, a command. Let this people return to you, but you must not return to them. A condition. If you take forth the precious from the file, I shall have to explain before I enter into my text what is precious and what is vile, and how these two things are mingled together, supposing it needs a hand of the servant of God to take forth the one from the other. What then? May we understand by precious. We must understand two things by it, something exceedingly scarce and something exceedingly valuable. Now, there are many things which are very valuable, which are not scarce. As for instance, the air we breathe, how it fills every place, and how we could not exist even a minute without inhaling the breath of heaven. And yet, it is not rare or scarce, for it fills every nook and crevice. Again, look at the rain, how precious is the rain, how it falls from heaven and fertilizes the earth and causes the crops to spring forth, clothing the fields with grass, and making the very valleys to sing. How precious is a rain in a season of drought, and yet only in exceedingly dry seasons. Like last year, can it be said to be rare? Look again at water, how it flows in the rivers, how it gushes out of the hills and the vales, how we have only to dig a few feet into the earth, and there we find this valuable substance, water. How precious our bodies could not exist without it. Yet, except in certain climates, it cannot be said to be scarce. But on the other hand, a thing may be scarce and yet not valuable. There are certain minerals or metals known only to chemists. If I were to tell you their names, you could not take them home. 
foot cell scarce and so rare as to be only known by means of chemical analysis. And yet, dear of no value, there are certain flowers that grow only in one or two spots in England, but only botanists value them. If you were wandering upon a mountain in Wells and saw a flower which only grows there, you would put no value upon it, nor is it valuable except in the eyes of a botanist. Therefore, a thing may be rare and yet not valuable. But when it is not only scarce in quantity, but valuable in quality, then we stamp upon it the word precious in its true sense. Gold, for instance, silver, diamonds, pearls. These represent a value in themselves, not because they are very rarely to be found, but because they are useful in the way of commerce, as a medium of exchange, applied to various purposes in the arts, are sought after by kings and princes and nobility to decorate their persons. These are instances where a thing is precious not only for its scarcity, but also for its intrinsic value. Having thus explained the word precious, I will do the same for the word vile, because I wish you to see distinctly the meaning between the two, so as to carry the idea into spiritual things. Vile is something common, cheap, that nobody sets any value upon. That is one sense of the word vile. And another is filthy, polluted, unclean, nasty, abandoned in every way, like the dirt or dung in the streets, which is only a stench and a nuisance. We have the words precious and vile in Scripture used with respect to men and women as well as things. We read of the precious sons and daughters of Zion, and we read of Eli's sons who made themselves vile, and their father forbade it not. We read that the vile person will work villainy, and the churl will speak hypocrisy. Job speaks of himself that he was in their eyes as one that was vile. No, he said as he felt in his own eyes, I am vile. Job 40 verse 4, and David could say when taunted with dancing before the ark, I will be yet more vile than thus. I will be base in my own sight. Second Samuel 6.22 now I shall go on to show how these are apparently mixed one with another, and how the servant of the Lord is God's mouth is to take forth the precious from the vile. And you will observe that the vile is more abundant than the precious, for he is not bidden to take forth the vile from the precious. Dad would pollute his hands with wickedness, but he is bidden to take the precious from the vile, that he may separate that which is precious to the honor and glory of God. It leave the vile to its own foulness and villainy. Even thus led to the words of the text, I shall show you that there are precious characters and vile characters, precious doctrines and vile doctrines, precious experience and vile experience, precious practice and vile practice, and that the servant of the Lord, who is to be the mouth for God, is to take forth the precious from the vile, that he may be as God's mouth. First in, who are precious characters? They are the sons and daughters of Zion. They are those whom God the Father loved with an everlasting love. They are those whom God the Son redeemed with his precious blood. They are those whom God the Holy Spirit makes his temple, in whose heart he plants a fear of God. And he is whom is making fit for the inheritance of the saints and light. 
these. Her precious characters, in themselves, here no better than others, though in some respects even worse, for it seems as if God had selected some of the most crooked materials, some of the vilest and worst in themselves, to make them vessels of honor meet for the master's use, Second Timothy 2, verse 21. There is, therefore, no difference in themselves. The difference is holy of God. It is his sovereign grace and sovereign grace alone that makes the distinction between the precious character and the vile character. Now, this precious character, being precious in the sight of God, is loved with an everlasting love. Precious is bought by the love of his dear son, and precious is taken possession of by the Holy Spirit. He is in the sight of God of inestimable value. It is not because there is anything in him. God looks to his dear son. In it is what he is in Christ by virtue of eternal union with the Son of God. It is because he is a member of the mystical body of the Lord Jesus Christ that in the sight of God he is precious. And who are the vile? The vile are those whom God looks upon as refuse. The vile are those whom he leaves to fill up the measure of their iniquities. The vile are those who practice villainy, who manifest their hypocrisies, and live and die under vile influences that draw down upon them the awful displeasure of the Almighty. Now, these precious characters and these vile characters are apparently mingled together. There may be sitting in the same seat side by side one who is precious and one who is vile. In the same family, there may be a precious one and others who are vile ones. In a church, in a congregation, there may be those who are unspeakably precious and those who are infamously vile. Now, the servant of God must take forth the precious from the vile by describing, as the Lord gives him power, what are the marks that manifest him who is precious? And what are the marks that manifest him who is vile? He must show how it is that the teaching of the Holy Spirit in the heart which makes one fear God's name, believe in his dear Son, hope in his mercy, love him and cleave to him with purpose of heart, and that by those things he is manifested as precious. On the other hand, a man who is vile is secretly working iniquity against God and his people. Therefore, in that sense, he is vile. Now, when the servant of God begins to open up these mysteries and traces out who are precious in the sight of God and who are vile, then he is as God's mouth. Number two. But again, there are precious doctrines, and there are vile doctrines, and these precious doctrines and these vile doctrines are apparently intermixed, so that it needs a servant of God to take forth the one from the other. The doctrine of the Trinity is a precious doctrine, a trinity of persons in the unity of Godhead, an eternal Father, an eternal Son, an eternal Spirit. And yet the three persons all one glorious God in the indivisible unity of the eternal essence. This is a precious doctrine, for it spreads its grace and its glory on every branch of divine truth. It sheds its beauty and glory on the electing love of God, on the redeeming blood of Jesus, on the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. 
The doctrine of three persons and one God, and each co-equal in deity, cast a bright and beautiful luster on every sacred truth of the Bible, so that without it there is no order, but all is confusion. If the blood which cleanses from all sin is not the blood of the Son of God, of him who is God, what value or validity is there in it to cleanse a guilty conscience? If his obedience is not the obedience of God's equal, how can that obedience be imputed to the saints of God, to be their shield and shelter, to justify them from all things from which they could not be justified by the law of Moses? If his law is not the law of the Son of God, how can that love be from everlasting to everlasting? How can it diffuse itself among the members of his mystical body? And again, how can he hear prayer and answer prayer and be an intercessor able to save to the uttermost all who come unto God by him, unless deity give validity to every act of his humanity? And so with the Holy Spirit, his divine person and a glorious Godhead, he casts a beauteous luster on every branch of revealed truth, the sonship of Christ, that he is revealed son of the Father, to ever lie in his bosom, as his own proper and real son, is a precious doctrine, and every notion, fancy, or doctrine which opposeth that is to be stamped as unutterably vile. The sovereignty of God, and choose it whom he will, and given no account to man of these manners, but as a sovereign disposing of all men, and all events, and all circumstances, is a precious doctrine. And though there are times and seasons when that doctrine seems to militate against our thoughts and wishes, when it seems to cross our path both in providence and in grace, yet it will ever be embraced by the saints of God as a God-glorifying truth that he is a sovereign, has a right to do what he will with body and soul, and that all his purposes are the purposes of a sovereign who can execute what he may be determined to bring to pass. What then are vile doctrines, every doctrine which denies the trinity of God, whatever name it be called, is a vile doctrine, every doctrine which denies the eternal sonship of our blessed Lord, it's a vile doctrine. Take it then as shortly as I can lay it down that every doctrine opposed to God and godliness, be it called what it may, it's a vile doctrine, and the servant of the Lord has to take one forth from the other, has to prove every word, and give the precious doctrines of the everlasting gospel, and set upon them God's attesting seal. And he is to denounce and testify and warn his hearers against those vile doctrines which harden the heart, sear the conscience, and land men in destruction and perdition. Number three, there is precious experience and there is vile experience. A precious experience springs out of the teaching of God in the soul and the work of the Holy Spirit upon the heart. Every conviction of sin that springs from the Spirit's inward convincing operations as precious as being the handiwork of God. Every sigh, every cry, every groan, every tear, every honest, humble confession before God of what we have been and are is precious because it is wrought by a divine power in the soul, and the result of it is salvation. 
Every sweet manifestation of the Son of God to the soul, every glimpse, glance, claim, or view of his glorious person by faith, every shining in of the light of his countenance, application of his word with power, whisper, of his heavenly love, drawing, of his divine grace, application of his precious truth to the heart is precious. It comes from God. It leads to God. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. It prepares a soul for eternity. Even the humblings that we experience under the hand of God, the breaking down of a hard heart, the softening of an obdurate spirit, the melting of soul under the breath of the Lord, with the going forth of supplication, confession, and desire to the God of all our mercies to look upon us and bless us, is precious because it is his gift and work. Everything which brings out of self draws to the Lord, makes sin hateful, Jesus precious, puts a world under our feet, gives us a victory over sin, weans us from the love of self, and makes the Lord Jesus precious, should be called a precious experience. And then, there is a vile experience, which is a knowledge of sin without a knowledge of salvation. Many men can speak of their evil heart and take a glory in it. There are few speaking comparatively, and perhaps none who sit under a gospel ministry who cannot speak something of the evil of their hearts. Oh, they're so filthy and so base and so vile and so black. Well, they are all that, but after all it may be a vile experience. Nothing but a burning up of nature. Nothing but the shining of light upon a dark and wicked heart, without any holy mourning under it. No godly sorrow, no real contrition, no repentance, no confession, no forsaking it. Men will glory in their sins, speak of their bad tempers, how they quarrel with their wives, how cross they are with their children. How they can speak to their servants and throw these things about as though this vile experience was the effect of grace, the fruit of the teaching of the Spirit. They can even boast of the sins they have committed, talk of the way they have been entangled, lust, they have fallen a prey to, and throw all this about as though it was grace that had wrought a knowledge of these things in them. It is nothing but a vile experience just so much dung and dirt of their corrupt nature, without anything of the grace of God in it. It is not knowing yourselves to be sinners that will save your souls. It is not seeing what you are, black as the tents of Gadar, that will take you to heaven. You may like to hear ministers describe the depths of the fall, the sins we are prone to, the temptations we are subject to, and the evils we feel. You can sit very eagerly to listen to a minister describing his evil heart and evil temper and what he feels in the absence of God. What a fretful, murmuring nature he has. You can suck all that down like sweet honey and feed upon it as a honeycomb. But when the servant of God begins to describe his sighs, cries, mourning, and tears, his restless nights, gloomy days, and how he has been exercised on account of the sins he feels. You turn away your ear. You leave all that. You take all the dark, all the black, all the foul, 
all the filthy, all the vile, and you gather up all this filth and rubbish and seek to make an experience of it. You say, Ah, our good minister tells us how bad he is, and what a vile heart he has. Why feel just as our good minister does? And if he is right, I am right. You take all the filth and foulness, but leave out all the good. And he will tell you perhaps he is tempted. And you say, yes, I am tempted. But he does not tell you he gives way to temptation. If you do, he tells you Satan spreads snares for his feet. But he does not tell you he falls into them as you do. He tells you how wicked his heart is and how easily he might be drawn aside if God permitted. And you believe all that. But you won't listen to him when he tells you how God keeps him as the apple of his eye, plants his fear deep in his heart, and turns him away from sin. You pull back your ear from all that and harden your hearts under a sound gospel ministry. You feed upon ashes. A deceived heart turns you aside. You bring a lie in your right hand. Here, it's a vile experience. Now the servant of God is to take forth the one from the other. He is not to keep back the evils of men's hearts, not to shun declaring the snares laid for their feet, nor the temptations into which they may fall but for God's help. He will tell you what he is and how sin works, because his heart is exercised by it. But he will not leave thee things at an uncertainty, but will so take forth a precious experience and hold it up to view that it will be seen it is precious. And in your vile experience, he will take and cast it out like filth, and set upon it his condemning seal, backed by the authority of God. And so he'll take forth the precious from the vile. But secondly, there in this verse is a promise. You shall be as my mouth. Now you see what a work the servant of God has to do and how he ought to be instructed in his own mind to see who are precious characters, and who are vile characters, what are precious doctrines, and what are vile doctrines, what is precious experience, and what is vile experience, and not only have wisdom and discernment to see the difference, but boldness to declare it, not to fear man, to stand in no dread of his congregation, but to stand before them in faithfulness and honesty, is being a steward of the mysteries of God and being responsible to God for the due execution of his office. Now this man will be as God's mouth. God will speak with authority by him to your souls. Now you'll receive many a sweet testimony into your conscience from him because he will not mask over matters nor cloak over doctrines and experience and practice and hide them all up in confusion. But he will speak with that authority and that power and that unction and that savor that it will be at times as God's very mouth to your soul. You will see your character described and it will come home to your bosom and drop as a word from God into your heart. He shall trace out your experience. He shall bring to light your profession. And the word of God will so back up what he says that it shall come home with God's authority, power, and unction into your soul. But if a man do not take forth the precious from the vile, he never can be used as God's mouth.
He never can speak with authority and power, nor would his word find a place in the consciences of those who fear God's name. Never think for a single moment of turning your back on the ways of God. For if you do, you will only walk in the ways that lead to perdition. And if you go on in them, the further you go, the more you will be entangled in the maze of sin and error. And it will be a mercy if you are ever brought back. Never mind your discouragements. Keep on in the footsteps of the prophet. It will guide you right at last. Abide by the truth of God. It is saved thousands. It will save you. Therefore, whatever be the consequence, hang by the truth of God. Keep close to what he has revealed by his spirit and grace, and then you will receive the end of your faith and the salvation of your soul.